Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm in Marblehead, Massachusetts to talk with Five Lives broadcasting institution, Rod Sharp, from the very studio his show is broadcast. Starting out in 1976 as a trainee at the BBC, Rod has had a variety of jobs for the Beeb, the World Service, Channel 4 News and LBC, often with a focus on America. When Five Live launched in 1994, he came up with the idea of an overnight show and has been presenting up all night ever since. With well over a million regular listeners, the Washington Post has described it as probably the best nighttime show in the world. And perhaps uniquely since 2007, Rod has been presenting it from his own home right here in the United States. Rod, thank you for joining me. You're very welcome. It's incredible to be here, actually, where you broadcast the show from. It's amazing. As a, as a genuine fan and a regular yeah. listener, it's amazing. Quite surreal. It's like uh, Oz letting you behind the curtain. And it's it's not half as impressive, is it, really? It's, I think it's incredibly impressive. I hope you Thank like you the dartboard, much. by the way. <laughs> I do. We do have to turn around. Yeah. But yes, I do. It's not, it's not quite how I imagined it to be when I listen to you kind of mm. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday nights. Actually, that's one of my first questions is, do you have quite an intimate relationship with your listeners? Because the show is unique that it gives you that space to mm. to talk to your interviewees with the length and the depth that they need but I also think it really gets the listeners yeah. in as well it, it, I do I do I do and it's just been lovely over the years to to be contacted by people and I and over the years my listeners I, I feel oddly enough I've had I've had listeners at both ends of their lives I remember early on in the show I had a regular correspondent who was an old lady in Wimbledon and she used to write to me in a beautiful hand, and she used to tell me what she thought had gone right that week. She was like the like a running the, commentary. She was like the Mrs. Trellis of right. a Paul Knight. Yeah. And she, but she was real, and she and I had a lovely relationship. And and for a few years, uh, the the notes went back and forth, and then I think she passed away. Uh, but but to have these kind of single relationships uh, is is a treat that maybe because of the length of the program I'm afforded, maybe because of length of tenure. I'm afforded, but I could still say, you know, hand on heart, if, if everything else goes wrong, I've probably got a dozen listeners, you know, who I can name, you know, who I know will be listening at any time and who'll be looking out for, for certain things. Is it flattered to be described as an institution or do you think that that's where, so, you know, so you think that was you've been doing it too <laughs> well? Well, it's quite funny because when I came here, uh, my young neighbour who was still at school at the time Googled me and she, and she got to this website called Rod Sharp the Legend <laughs> and she's so excited. She's running around the house going, Rod's a legend, he's a legend. I don't mind. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered, uh, obviously, because I don't really think of myself as, as that at all. Well, I've got tons of questions kind of about the show and all kinds of things, but let, let's go back to the very beginning. Did you always want to be a journalist? Uh, no. Actually, when I was in university, I was so interested in theatre, and, and I got so involved in, in different productions, but realised that, that the, the real place of art is in the world, and that one of the, the fascinating things about art is, is organising your reality. So you can either have a fictional reality or you can have actual reality and you can you can get into it up to your elbows. And so from a point of view of, of fiction, I kind of transited from fiction to reality somewhere along the way. And I became much more interested in the art of organizing reality, which is journalism in a in a certain sense. And I applied to join the BBC 
And in those days, BBC ran two very, very kind of fabulous training courses. And one was called the General Traineeship, in which you went on and you became a research assistant and then you went off to, to join a production team. And the other one was the News Training Scheme. And I thought, well, either one, perfect, suits me fine. So I, I applied. And halfway through the interview process, which was lengthy and which kept on coming down, you know, we, we were, I think, selected down from something ridiculous, like 2,400 applicants to a final 12. Well, that's an honour in itself. It was. It was. It was I mean, I, I said to my tutor, I said, this is going terribly well. And he said, yes, you know, they call this the crown prince scheme. So I went, oh, really? Me? And so when we finally got to the bit and they offered me a place, I, didn't, I still didn't quite know what I was going for. But they then said, well, we're not running the general training scheme this year. That We're running the, the news training scheme. So I ended up in BBC News. But that must have been incredibly exciting because there you are wanting to be a journalist and you've just, you've just landed oh, exactly. a job on BBC News. Oh, that's right. That's right. I mean, within, within months, even within the first month, we were meeting some of the biggest names in the game. I mean, Robin Day sat down with us, I should say Sir Robin, of course, and he told us all about how important it was to ask prosecutorial questions. And, and that was the, the, the mould that so many BBC presenters came up in. And if you look at Jeremy Paxman, well, he was a news trainee about two or three courses before us. And he, too, had the sit down with Robin Day and was told to ask prosecutorial questions. I, at some point, departed from the old prosecutorial Kool-Aid, and I, I don't do that as a general rule. I only do that if I get really annoyed. But I also think you, you don't necessarily need to because of the time and space that you give your interviewees, because often they can end up hanging themselves, really. I mean, I, that's Pax, much more fun. Paxman might have only have three or four minutes yes. even, with someone, even on Newsnight, really. Well, it's I not know. a lot and, of time. And, and, and my, my dear old colleague, John Humphrey, is the same thing. We've had John on the podcast, I mean, actually. Oh, it's marvellous. John is so fabulous. I, I remember I was... For some reason, we met in the TV newsroom when I'd already started doing Up All Night and, and John was walking through and he always wears sneakers. Don't ask me why. He does, yeah. Uh, but anyway, John came bouncing along. He said, Rod, this is very good. Keep it up. You know, and then he took issue with something because in those days, uh, before, I know you want to talk about Dr. Carl, but before we ever had Dr. Carl, I was running this mad minute from the Duck's Breath Mystery Theatre in San Francisco called Ask Dr. Science. Ask Dr. Science, it went, he's not a real doctor. And then we had a minute about nose hairs or, or <laughs> you know, altitude sickness, you know, while climbing the stairs. And it was very, very funny, I thought. But John couldn't stand it. He just he said, "Get rid of that. Ask Doctor Science." You know. I love that. I uh, I asked him actually on the podcast what his advice would be to would be interviewees that were about to come on the Today program, be grilled by him, and he said, "Oh, my answer is very simple. Don't do it." <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, <laughs> I'm sure John would be the first to say, "I'm not going on with him." I mean, you kind of freelanced and did quite a lot of jobs before you started up all night. Could oh, you give us a kind of brief pricey of that before we we talk about yeah. the show for the next yeah. eleven hours? That's right. Well, I can. <laughs> I broke out of, of the BBC mould, or maybe the BBC broke me out of the BBC mould. And, uh, and I went off, as you said, I went to LBC. I met my old friend Malcolm Brabant, who I still think is one of the best reporters in the business because he never lets go of anything. 
uh, and I met Scarlett Maguire, and then this guy called Peter Allen was down in Westminster. And Peter was like a god in those days, so you didn't really kind of meet Peter. You just you just knew he was, he was there. there. Yeah, it was a bit like Doug and Pete, who were the the morning presenters on on LBC. But I stayed there for uh, long enough to realize that radio was much more instant and faster business than I'd ever seen it at the BBC. And then I went off to California to find a girlfriend that I had been trying to keep up with for the last couple of years. I see. You didn't just kind of go there generically to oh, find any, any uh, old girlfriend. It's quite no, a trip. No, especially right. fam. It's always right. the case. Yeah. Uh, so I, I went to California and, and uh, tried to freelance and discovered it was much more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Mm. And it was saved by the fact that I could also paint, as in uh, painting houses, wow. not, not painting portraits. So I painted a few houses in San Francisco while I was there. And then I started to do features for the Today program and things started to work. And then my sister got married in Scotland. And so I spent all my money on a plane fare back home. And then when I was home, uh, by sheer good fortune, although I didn't regard it as such at the time, I was a bit sniffy about it. Uh, a local radio station opened up in Dundee. Is that Tay Radio? Radio Tay. And they offered me a job because people with my experience were quite thin on the ground. Dundee isn't San Francisco well, with the greatest no, of respect. But, but <laughs> Dundee is a great journalism centre. You know, the great James Cameron came from Dundee. A lot of very great uh, print journalists came from Dundee. But Dundee suddenly had a radio station. What were we going to do? So uh, we, for, for more than a year, I worked with some great people who taught me a lot and taught me how to get a story from the ground up. And we were being listened to. The greatest compliment that you could pay us was that we were being listened to in the Courier newsroom. Wow. In other words, they were listening to us for stories that they could follow up. So we, we got to be quite, quite hot. And then after a year... I went off to California in search of another girl, You're right? And uh, and things went from there. You know, it was it was terrific. Uh, so, and then you went back to California, and did you then start to pick up doing yes. stuff down the yeah, line? Yeah, and, I, and I was enormously grateful. I mean, a guy at the BBC gave me a, a stringer's card. I said, "I'm going to San Francisco." He said, "Well, don't spend all the time on the beach," and he therefore betrayed the fact he didn't really know much about San Francisco. Yeah. It was not the kind of place you spend a lot of time on the beach, except wrapped up in a big woolly fleece. Exactly, it's freezing over yeah, there. Yeah, I know, I know. It's not LA, that's for sure. Anyway, it got, it, it got better and better. Uh, I was also working for the Glasgow Herald, and I was immensely grateful to the assistant editor at uh, the Glasgow Herald, a man called Ronnie Anderson. And Ronnie really uh, groomed me and looked after me and helped me write newspaper stories. So I was doing, I was kind of multimedia, yeah. you know, I was working for radio, I was working for print, Later, 20 I years think. ahead of your time, really, because yeah. nowadays being a multi-platform journalist, as you call it, is kind of standard. Kind of you standard, have to do it, but yes. back then it wasn't. But it wasn't. I mean, so I, I, first of all, there was radio, there was print, and then I got a call from uh, my old boss, or actually it wasn't my old boss at that point. It was a guy called Chris Kramer, who I, who, I remember Chris's first day at the BBC, and we sat in the subs table together, and then he rose without a trace, and suddenly he was the head of all of news gathering, which is a whole reporting operation, and Chris really created news gathering, uh, and and we became good colleagues. And he gave me TV work, um, which again transformed everything because I learned how to. I'd I'd been trained in it, but for the first time I actually had to deliver. Uh, and so I did TV, radio, print, 
And then I had a string for writers, the news agency. So I, I did feel that I was covering a lot of bases. It sounded like, in like you were days. quite busy. Yes, yes, I was. But did, you had to keep busy. Did you prefer the kind of freelancing lifestyle, as it were, where you only ever got paid for the work you do? Because there, there is a certain satisfaction and a security of having a, a, a stipend I from tell the you, I'm massively <laughs> secure, and I'm, I'm deeply grateful for those stipends. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, in those days, I think it was more feasible. And, you know, I, I, I weep real tears when I think about the, the people who are entering journalism now and are told to go the freelance route. And then they're told by people like Huffington Post have to that write for free. they've got to write it for free and it'll all be good for their reputation. Well, that doesn't put food on the table. It's a race to the bottom, really, isn't it's, it? It's disgraceful. I mean, journalism, there's just no money in it these days, no. really. O- no. Other than the BBC and a few larger, the commercial employers, they're all trying to, trying to get it done on a shoestring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't see any any good to this. Uh, and you know, I, I for a few years I was I was quite involved with the um, the, the Berkman uh, Center for the Study of the Internet and Society uh, at Harvard, who who also have a big interest in in how journalism is evolving. And the conclusion I came to, which I think is shared by Richard Sandbrook, who was the head of everything at the BBC for a while. In, I don't think it was terms. the exact title, but that was his de facto yeah, like, title. Like, you know, head Lord of, of the Universe, yeah. head of everything. He's, he's due to come on. He's a good guy, Richard. Good, he is, he is. So Richard, Richard talked to you in much more detail about this, but my conclusion was that, that other than big public organisations, uh, which are funded by public donations, or in the BBC's case, by a licence fee, foundation support is the other big thing in journalism now. You know, so you get... You get things like the Centre for Investigative Journalism, you know, who have a foundation behind them. The, the big thing in this country, in the US, that is, is called the Knight Foundation. And the Knight Foundation have their fingers in many, many pies, and we're deeply grateful to them for, for keeping journalism going. But it still seems to me wrong that if you're going to enter journalism and you're going to be a freelance that what you really have to do is write grant applications. You know, mm-hmm. in the old days, you used to be your own best marketing man. But now you've got to write grant proposals, you know, before you get anywhere. You've got to set up the, the centre for Rod Sharp studies. And then we're off to the races. It, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I disagree with so many critics of the BBC, because of, because of the unique way it's funded. Yes, that does distort the market a little bit and create various issues. But on the other hand, it guarantees that editorial independence. You, you wouldn't get the chief executive of ITV being grilled by someone on ITN about the, a terrible job they've done in the same way they said George Entwistle was grilled by John Humphreys on the Today Bank, which led to his resignation. I mean, that, that kind of impartiality is, is a direct outcome of the way it's funded it is it is although there's something i really wanted to to ask you about which is this what some people have called the myth of objectivity a long time ago um john burt and tony jay came up with something which was known as the burt jay thesis which was another phrase was the bias against understanding and you were supposed to contextualize everything. And of course, that's what I'm desperately trying to do all the time. I'm trying to de jargonize all these shorthand phrases which betray the fact that a journalist doesn't actually understand the story. And I'm trying to say in words of two syllables at the most, this is the story. Mm. And then we go on and we can all react to it and we're all on, on the same page. But the, the Bert J thesis was that you, you created so much context that you had a very clear idea of what the story was before you actually went out to shoot it. And then you went out and you shot the story that you knew you were going to get. 
but you didn't let the story develop because if, if you let the story develop, it got out of your control. Uh, that's one aspect of so-called objectivity. Uh, another aspect of objectivity is that we're all cut from the same cloth in many ways. You know, the idea of the 16-year-old guy who's sharp-witted and leaves school and enters journalism and goes up through the ranks knowing how to take a note, knowing how to get names right at funerals, which is how most people used to learn. Boy, oh, boy, that's changed. So now what we're facing is, is, a, is a slight sort of middle-class bias, to put it mildly, in our journalism, where we know that we should give equal weight to both sides of the argument. But my, my serious question is, when you're looking at a, an American election like this, there's a false dualism between treating Trump the same way as you treat Clinton, because you're treating somebody who's basically a, a self-aggrandizing reality TV star with the same weight that you treat uh, someone who's got 30 years in government. Trump's still got a message, which is it's all broken, and if it's not broken, let's break it so we can fix it. Clinton's message is one of progressive improvement, or at least progressive accommodation. But is there, is there a real justification for giving them the same weight in our output? And that's, that's something that I think we'll have to look at after the election is over. Because a few other guests have, have said that there's this kind of over-reliance now on, on balance, because yeah. sometimes if you're presenting two people equally, you know, two views, opposing views, actually that can distort the reality as well, because as you just said, you know, some, a lot of creationists, for example, say, well, get me on so that I can debate with someone, a scientist, but actually the science is true, you know, <laughs> you shouldn't really have yes. a creationist on at all. That's right, and of course climate change is the other great example of that, because uh, 95 or probably 99% of the scientists in the world understand that climate change is real and if you don't understand that climate change is real you know we look down the coast today on the day that we're actually recording this when uh, Hurricane Matthew has just uh, winged into South Carolina and asked people down there if they don't think that that something is going on I think I think our answer to that has been evasive if I'm if I'm honest and although we've we really tried to accept climate change I think part of the answer is we don't talk about it enough. We need, we need to talk about it a lot more. We need to talk about these, these strange variations in temperature. The fact that the UK, especially the north, is much windier now than it used to be. And, and these strange heavy rains uh, that are coming in place of the kind of rain that we used to love and enjoy. How does it work as a kind of BBC journalist? Because clearly you've got to be impartial and you, you can't have a view on, you know, whether John Major should be the best prime minister or Tony Blair, whoever. But on, on certain things like climate change, mm. uh, you know, to, to say that you don't have a view would be to distort the truth as well, because clearly it's real. So do, do you ever think as a BBC broadcaster, you know, I can't say more than I need to on this? How does that work? Can you uh, choose what to be impartial about? Because a, cl a climate change denier would say, oh, you're already part of the problem, yeah, BBC you're, broadcaster, because yes, uh, you've yes, already yes, adopted the, uh, my yes, opponent's position. You're part of the, the worldwide the conspiracy. conspiracy yeah. Yes, I know. Um, it, to which I try to raise a radio eyebrow. Uh, I don't maybe say it in words of one syllable, but I don't give that kind of thing very much uh, space because I don't think it deserves very much space. Uh, but I, I, I do see that point. I mean, here, between you and I, um, I feel I can be perfectly opinionated. I have opinions. I'm a real human being. 
Uh, sometimes you have to sit on them, but because you really want to give both sides time. You want to give them space. And as you, I always come back to the, your argument about giving people enough rope. Uh, some people attack me for that. And they say, how dare you give that guy so much airtime? It's great. I'd say as a fan of the show and as a long-term listener, it's great that you do because they hang themselves. Well, but you've got to hear them. You can't not hear them. In the same way as we may come at this uh, American election with our British or particularly actually Scottish perceptions of Donald Trump because the entire Scottish nation is is lined up against Donald Trump uh, at this point because of what happened in Aberdeen. And and for us to say that that Donald Trump is a is a good would be probably wrong, but but we can't ignore the people who say Donald Trump is a good and Donald Trump will bring much needed change. And I'm working on a piece uh, just now where some of Trump's supporters talk about why they have to support him. Actually, that brings me to an interesting question I wanted to ask, really, which is that how does it work? You know, you develop relationships with long-time guests on the show that appear frequently and people like Trump where you either, as a journalist, you either really like them or you really don't like them. Mm. Does that ever seep in? Do you have to kind of resist that if you... And it could work if you're a big fan of someone where you don't want to be too fawning, but also with someone like Trump who, well, I certainly don't (laughs) like him. I would have to to deliberately hide that (laughs) in an interview. I'll tell you what I'm thinking about is the the months leading up to uh, Obama's election in 2008... And we, of course, because he was such a phenomenon, uh, were giving him lots of space and, and lots of time to, to discuss how this was all evolving. And, uh, and eventually somebody just texted me, get a room, you know, <laughs> which I thought was quite cute uh, because they saw me as hopelessly biased in, in favor of Obama. Uh, the difficulty is, of course, you like people, uh, but it's not liking uh, that I think should be the standard. The standard should be, whether they are creating news. Mm. And if they are creating news, whether you like them or not is incidental. Tell us how Up All Night came to be. Let's, let's start at well, the beginning. Um, so here I was working the, the foreign desk. Uh, I had taken a job at the BBC in London after my wife got a big job in London and said, well, you know, and we were only just married. We are literally only just married, and we'd been living in San Francisco. And she said, well, I'm going to take this job. Uh, and it's a big job. And I said, oh, that's good. Um, I said, well, I suppose I better come with you then. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it'd so I didn't really have choice. Yeah. So I had to fold my tent in, in San Francisco, and I started freelancing for my friends at the World Service and, and the domestic service. But uh, that first summer, I actually worked for Bridget Kendall, of all people, because wow. she was the editor of a program called Outlook. And I was a sort of general roving reporter on the British election, and I remember doorstepping Mrs. Thatcher one day when she had a cold. And, and I thought, oh, this is too, too funny for words. So I sympathized with her on tape over the fact that she had a bad cough. And she thanked me, you know, she said it was, you know, something she was getting over pretty quickly. So I f- discovered a chink, you know, it wasn't all solid steel yeah. or iron. So this went on. And then I started to take shifts on the foreign desk uh, where I'd be talking between the programs and the correspondents. And I found I had a natural sympathy for that, having been out in the field myself. Ultimately, they offered me a contract. I kept saying no. I went to Channel 4 for a year to do their foreign desk. Uh, And then I thought I was going back to the States because I had this kind of longing to come back here. That would be 1989. 
And then I didn't. But I took a contract with the BBC thinking it would be quite short term and it would be good for my relationship like any good freelance. You know, I'm thinking I'll get to know all these people even better. So I stayed and I'm working the foreign desk. And then the first Gulf War came along in 91. And of course, SCUD FM was the response to that. And I was close, but I was peripheral to Scud FM. I watched the people who worked this six-week rolling news service, and I thought, this is great. This is really a, a, a proper you know, response, a modern response. Finally, we're within sniffing distance of a kind of AM news sound that I so loved from over here. And then when I heard that they were going to launch Five Live as a, as a rolling news station, I thought, this is great. So I wrote a proposal and sent a letter to Jenny Abramsky, who was going to be the designated She was editor. the first controller, yes, wasn't she? she was the first controller. And at one point, I quoted Duncan in Macbeth in the Scottish play. And I said, if it were done, it were better to were done quickly. And I, I, I don't know how I managed to work that in. But anyway, I just wanted her to make a fast decision on the basis of my fabulous proposal for having live correspondence from Japan and Australia and India and all those places that we weren't getting on the air enough. And I knew how frustrated these people were that they weren't getting on the air. But here was a, a natural platform for them. To give them the space. To give them the space. So An I idea said, that still works very well let's, today. I said, let's do this uh, foreign news show, basically, uh, overnight. And, uh, and she wrote back and said, I wish you hadn't used that quote from Macbeth because my, f- my husband is a Duncan. Uh, uh, but anyway, it was just nice. It was very, very nice. So we, got, we had a very fast start to this given that Jenny had very few weeks to put this all together. John Burke gave her a couple of months at best, and, she, and it really got off the ground to a flying start. And we were, I would say, uh, without fear of contradiction, that we came out of the blocks fully formed. We knew exactly what we wanted to do. We had a terrific couple of assistant editors, uh, Ian Parkinson, who was uh, at Newsbeat before he came to us, and Simon Waldman, who, as an editor dealt with all the BBC stuff and is wonderful and a perennial optimist, has now, has now retired uh, like so many of my friends. But uh, Simon was, was terrific and it was lovely to work with him. And uh, the result was that we had a year of protected development with phenomenal staff, the like of which I cannot imagine today. Excellent institution. How has it evolved in your mind? I mean, in many ways, it's the same show it was at the outset. Oh, I think in my mind it is. But one of my um, greatest critics, and I mean that with, with great respect because he's a critical listener, is Bill Rogers, who was the deputy controller of Five Live and, and now does a, a regular uh, media blog trading as WDR. And Bill said that initially... A lot of what we did was quite hard to take in because we're jumping from things live to live to live to live, which I thought was the greatest fun. It was it was a tightrope act all the time. And I didn't know what was coming next. And believe me, I'm a quick study because sometimes I had no idea what the next story would be. But that would be the listener's experience as well. Although... It didn't hurt because we had, we suddenly found that we had this sustained audience all night long who would listen through thick and thin, uphill and down dale. They didn't know what was going to happen. And I thought that was important. 
to be unpredictable. And how does the work, this show work in terms of the management of it? Because you obviously do kind of Monday to Wednesday, Dotton does the, the yeah. rest of it. And, and even though you don't mention it on air a lot, I think all your listeners know that you broadcast here. It's something that's, yeah. that even though it's never really mentioned, everyone right. knows. It's like an inside secret, it isn't is. it? It's like our club, isn't <laughs> it? it? Is, isn't you know, it? Here we are again. Welcome to the attic. And, uh, and, and it's, it's nice. You know, and I haven't put up a webcam, partly because that involves complications with the BBC firewall. I mean, that's, to be honest, that's the main reason. We, we had a bash at it and then realised every time we got it up, the firewall would take it down. Uh, so that's why when you turn on the webcam, it doesn't work. You see the empty studio. So it's not part of a conspiracy. Oh no, I'm so sorry. I no, no. I mean, I, I think this would be a reasonable uh, thing to to uh, webcast, but we'd need to find a way around the, the the firewall. As a fan of the show, though, I've always imagined when I've been listening to you that uh, that you would be in one of these what I would call proper recording studios <laughs> with the you know the panes of glass and all yes. the kind of the yes. the, um, the soundproofing on the walls and everything. And we yeah. are just in your attic here. Well, it's a I normal know. attic, and you well, have a desk. I, I, allow me to describe <laughs> the detritus around us. But uh, I, I I work up here, um, so I have. I have a couple of computers which I use to do the show. This is the one I use for live scripting into the BBC. The BBC came up with a virtual private network in the mid-90s, mainly for the use of its bosses and, and programme editors who needed to work at home. So I hijacked it, essentially, which has been the story of my life, you know, is hacking the organisation. And I, uh, I've got this, you know, live scripting through the virtual private network. I'm not on the BBC's... T1 or anything like that. I can talk technical because we're on a podcast. Absolutely. And all of our listeners are media geeks, right, so we, exactly. want, we want to know this level of right, detail. Okay, so, um, so I'm using the VPN, and I've also got an ISDN, which uh, is, is getting increasingly hard to get over here because the, uh, the, the telephone companies won't now put them in. But if you've got one, they basically service it with racks and racks of old equipment, which is underutilized, with the result that if I have a rack failure, which I, I had once, they'll just switch it to another rack. Incredible. So I figure I've got about 100 years to go before we use up all of the ISDN equipment in my local exchange. Have you never been tempted to move to Broadband? Because I deal with yeah. a lot of correspondents and they use like Lucy Live. Oh, they I have know. an app on I, their yeah, phone. Yeah. But it's all, it's all about latency, um, which is the, the fine question of delay. So if, if you have a, a, a delay of less than you know, some really tiny small delay. Yeah. delay. Um, it's imperceptible. And so you get Dr. Carl from his studio in Australia, from the ABC, and me from here, and, uh, you know, Mr. Smith in Wigan, and we're all talking to each other, and there is no perceptible delay. So in order to use that codec, you, I know that ISDN works. But the internet isn't good enough yet. Uh, it might not be, but there's a, there's a piece of kit that, that some people use which uh, is, a, is broadband based. And I'm going to try it out because I've got a, an election night contribution to make and I'm going to try it out then. So I'll, I'll be running it here just to see if the latency issue is, is more pronounced than it is on ISDN. And if it's not, well, I might become a believer, but I'm, I'm kind of old school in that regard. And if I've got the ISDN, I'll use it. How is the show put together? What's a typical week? I mean, because you, like mm. you, you said, there's various ingredients of a week, like sure. Dr. Carl and so yes. on. Do you self-produce some of it? Do you well, have a team oh, yes. in, in Salford as yes, well? Yes, I mean, it's become, uh, it, it's become and I, I 
you know, I regret I regretted this more than I do now. It's become a little bit more formulaic. But then you get things like Dr. Carl, which are sort of appointment radio for yeah. for some. Well, if, I, if I'm not if I've fallen asleep, I'll listen to Dr. Carl on podcast. It's amazing. Yeah. So we all, and I, I apologise here for any podcasts that we haven't put up. Uh, when people write in and say the podcast isn't there, I always chase it up. But sometimes uh, people are better at following up than than other times. And we had a great success this week, so I I put two up, which was very good. But The fact is that uh, I start on a Monday morning and quite often on a Monday I'll have a book to read and and you can see I've got a bit of a slush pile over there of of books I'm either about to read or have just read. And and I'll speed read them. Um, And I, I often speed read them standing up because it gets it gets the job done faster. And so that takes two or three hours. And by four o'clock and well, I'm talking four o'clock Eastern time which is nine o'clock in the evening. So by nine o'clock in the evening, I'm, I'm ready to roll. And we start recording. We may record anything up to six or eight uh, interviews, sometimes not as many. And then we'll slot them in. Uh, and the rest of the show is live or uh, in, in these days of, of slightly straightened resources, some of it might be uh, repeating something that we did at one o'clock at four o'clock. And I mean, again, I can say to listeners of the show, when we're really humming, we don't need to do that. Mm. But sometimes we do. And and I, I just hope you'll bear with us because we're not trying to shortchange you. It's just that physically there isn't the, the manpower. I also think it helps as well because sometimes if I'll fall asleep listening to the show, I, I, I wake up very early anyway, kind of half four, quarter past four, yeah. I can catch the tail end. And there's often, you know, the best bits of the show there as well, I mm-hmm. think. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, it's so... I do also occasionally produce little bits and pieces, and I say I'm working on a piece about how the election is being viewed locally. Uh, and I've realised that, you know, this is an incredibly white part of the world, and yet views do diverge. So we'll have a little bit of that, and I'm I'm looking forward to to creating something because I always like producing stuff. You know, it's like when you're in radio, you like to do your own packages now and again because it just keeps you right and I'm I I that I know you've spoken to Peter Bowes and and Peter does lovely packages and lovely mixes sometimes when he when he interviews somebody and we still all talk about his interview with Glenn Campbell which was such a such a success some people love producing themselves others hate it they just want mm-hmm. to be the, the not there's anything wrong with that but they want to do the on air stuff purely and have everything handed to them you obviously that's not your style no i'm just a hack haven't i i just you know i do this because you know it, it it's fun you know and it's and i can think of a lot of jobs that are not half as much fun do you feel it gives you a unique perspective being over here in America? Because now, you know, with the election several mm-hmm. weeks away, that must give you a unique perspective as a broadcaster and someone who lives here as a resident. Yes. Oh, yes. But I think it's terribly important not to put your own values into it uh, because I'd be the last person to say what's good for me. I'm not trying to get out of this any, any personal advantage. But if I can use the position to better interpret this for a British audience, a predominantly British but not always British audience, then I will. Uh, so I, I like to think of myself, uh, if you remember in Dan Dare, well, you may be a bit, a bit young for, for Dan Dare, Paul, but, but um, in Dan Dare they had this, this evil character. It was a small green man called the Mekon. And the Mekon had a, like a floating 
platform um, in, in which he floated about six foot off the ground. And I think of myself as floating about, you know, six feet off the planet, somewhere that I can actually see both sides of the Atlantic at the same time. And it must give you a unique insight as a Brit, but living here, covering this the American election insofar as I don't think those Brits quite get it. I mean, I, I come over to America regularly now, but yeah. when, I, I see it from a different perspective when I'm physically here. Yes. It sounds obvious to say, but it, I, f- I feel less remote from it when I'm here. Well, that's right. And and if there's one thing I can do, it's it's communicate to people how, how terrified people are about losing health insurance. Uh, I think that's... One of the underlying messages of this and other elections is how vital health is to people. And the fact is that Americans pay more for it than anybody else. They pay more than Canadians. They pay twice as much as we do. And it's a different way of delivering it. And it all goes through insurance companies. who And you're either insured or you're not. You're either insured or you're not. Uh, and if you're not, then you fall into the, into the public care which ends up costing the people who are insured because it's all added to uh, the premiums of the of the insured. But if you have a good job, then your employer provides health insurance for you. So an awful lot of the domestic discussions that we gloss over as, as Brits as not very interesting are to do with this life-and-death matter of how much of the family income actually goes on health care. I would be interested in your perspective of this, because as a Brit, I think, oh, America's great. There's so many aspects of its society that's fantastic, but I, I don't get guns and, and I mm-hmm. don't get health care. Right. Is it because of just the sheer weight of the entrenched interest to promote them that, that, that change isn't possible? Yes. And, and people, if, if you say, if you're around Republicans and many Democrats and you say single-payer system, they immediately go, oh, that would be like the National Health Service in Britain. That's not very good, is it? People have to wait for a long time for their treatment, if they even know that. Uh, but often, single-payer system is, is a kind of a trigger word for, I don't want that. I can't have that. It's, you know, my health care, my health is far too important. But what they're really then doing is, is opting to pay more uh, and pay more and pay more, which has been the... The way of things. What's the plan for the election? We're only, as we record this, we're about four weeks away. Yes. I mean, are they, aren't you and Peter Bowes going on the road or something? Well, wouldn't that be lovely? Um, and <laughs> and I <laughs> frankly think that Peter and I are the dream team because we had such fun at the uh, convention. He said so, yeah. It was really marvellous. Um, Peter, in fact, is in L.A. and he'll be covering the California end of things. And, and I'll be doing the mirror image here because um, Jim Nocty and... Tim Franks and uh, others will be anchoring it from Washington. I'm going to be up in New Hampshire, basically taking in one of the early voting states. So we'll, we'll know early on in the night what the national result is in New Hampshire. And if Trump wins in New Hampshire, it's going to have a good night. So we'll be able to say that categorically. Uh, conversely, if he doesn't do very well in New Hampshire, we'll know very soon which way the wind is blowing. If, if it's a cliffhanger, well, you know, all bets are off. Equally, control of the Senate could be 50-50. I think that's the, the current projection. But it requires a woman called Maggie Hassan to win the Senate seat in New Hampshire. So I'll be tracking that too. And once I've done that, I think my job is done. Uh, so I'll have a couple of hours into the late show with Phil Williams on, on Five Live. And a good then, show. Yeah, which will be great fun. And I get on so well with Phil. And I'll have a you know bunch of people up there who know what they're talking about, uh, who I've been 
well, they've been so nice to us. We we went up there in January and February and and just really got our feet under the table this time in in terms of New Hampshire politics. So I'll be repeating a bit of that probably. And uh, then the the scene switches to places like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, which is going to be so important, and Ohio. And and then, of course, it goes out west to places like Colorado. And you'll notice I'm naming states because over the vast majority of the country, the vote you could, is a foregone conclusion. Uh, you're going to say red state for the Republicans, blue state for the Democrats, but could turn out to be a very red night, unlikely in my opinion, or a very blue night, possibly more likely. We'll have to wait and see. How do you maintain and build relationships with your BBC colleagues kind of being here? Because there you mentioned that Jim Nocty is going to be there in DC, yes. but you're obviously not there. Do you see them as they're passing through? Or oh, well, I work? always, I mean, the joke is I always see Jim at election time. You know, we, we don't see each other for years and then, we, and then we can't get out of each other's way. And I've, I've known Jim since we were both students together in Aberdeen. We've, we've known each other all our adult lives pretty much. And, uh, but you can't have those kind of water cooler moments that you would if you were based no, no. at NBH, for example. No, that's right. And and I can't say that, uh, you know, I'm constantly on social media, you know, to my pals. You know, if you've been around for, let's add up the numbers, 40 years, uh, then you just know people, you know. And, and it's like seeing old friends that you haven't seen for a long time. You pick up where you left off. What's your perspective on, on the UK broadcasting scene at the moment? So, for example, we had Mark Thompson recently on the podcast, and uh, there's all this thing going on with Bake Off and all this kind of thing, and I asked mm. him, and he, he's got no insight because he lives in New York, and he's not involved in the BBC, and he consider, right. he lives in America now, whereas yeah. although you live in America, you do broadcast for the BBC uh, well, still. Well, exactly, <laughs> and I, I try to keep across that. I mean, How do you do that then? Well, I, I, I read and I, and I listen and I talk, you know, I talk to my pals in, in the UK. And Bake Off strikes me as a most unfortunate episode. And uh, I'm, I'm sad about it because obviously the show is going terribly well. And if there be any fault, it's probably with the producers who, who saw the, the deal as the thing rather than the show, um, and they put the deal before the show. Isn't that, I mean, Mark mentioned, because he was obviously ran Channel 4 and he's run the BBC, so you could see it from both sides. And one of the things I got from the interview was, in a sense, isn't it an ultimate um, conclusion of, of kind of the John Burt producer choice type it thing, is. where if you have independent companies, they're going to take the best offer, of whether that be for the BB or Channel 4. That's right, and if, if the BBC helps you develop a really successful show and then you become a brand... And then you go somewhere else. Well, you know, that's tough, BBC. That's the, that's the view. If the show just evaporates in the process, then you, you, you're, a bit, you're a bit stuffed, aren't you? What are you going to do with a Paul Knight over the next 20 <laughs> years? Because part of me wants you to say nothing's going to change because mm-hmm. then I can rely on it. Nothing, you know, something <laughs> being a constant. Is there an urge within you to kind of innovate, change and evolve it? And uh, you mentioned earlier about how it's evolved, but you've not noticed it. As yeah, it were. Will it carry yes. on like that? Will, will, will you be doing it 20 years yeah, from Well, now? there's a question. I mean, I'd be, <clears throat> I'd be quite old. Mind you, this guy called Vin Scully has just retired as the basketball caller for the Los Angeles Dodgers at the ripe old age of 84. Oh, please, God, don't make me Vin Scully. I don't want to be Vin Scully. I don't actually know. You know, I, I, don't, I don't go around threatening to, to retire or something. 
maybe this is keeping me alive. You know, I, there's that too. You know, maybe there's a maybe there's a symbiosis here that I haven't quite uh, come to terms with. I think if it's evolving anywhere, it's probably evolving towards podcasts because, you know. This is the way everything is going. It seems to me it's it's, it's also time shifting, isn't it? I mean, and I, it's time shifting. I, my my one sadness would be that back in back in the year dot uh, when we had we, we just had an anarchic website for about a year because nobody else had a website, and we had a wonderful guy called Dennis running it, and we're basically running the website like a webzine. Yeah, and everybody just piled in and they said what they liked about the show and what they wanted to see and everything. Never get away with that. It now. was hilarious, <laughs> but that was before bureaucracy uh, realized that that the web was a marketing tool, and of course now it's all about marketing. Quite simply, everything we broadcast is available as a link. In other words, if I do a 10-minute interview, there's a link. If I do a 5-minute interview, there's a link. If we do a 30-minute interview, there's another link. What are we waiting for? You know, storage is cheap as chips, and yet we're being held back and we're, we're held into uh, what seem to me artificial constraints. Do you ever feel, though, a bit like these um, these slightly older kind of rock stars where they lament the demise of the album? Where <laughs> all, you know you can the Europe all night might you might be able to t- chop it into say ten or different Aye. chunks, but it, there there is a joy to kind of listening to the whole thing, is there? Oh, there not? is. I mean, there's this kind of a funny progress, isn't there? When you go from uh, you know the Japanese prime minister talking about the money supply to to some woman talking about uh, you know her pet snail or something it's uh, you know or or the the dog that dialed 999 <laughs> uh it, it, it there are there are things like that Quite a helpful the, dog if it was an they emergency. are the joys of, yeah. of radio after all and that's what we live for and uh, again i'm well aware that uh, in the days when journalism was bigger and fatter and there was more journalism we were more likely to get to these stories and and i know that that they're there somewhere and and we can pick them up if we can only find them on on Facebook. But it was a lot easier to find that stuff when it was in one or two places. It's quite difficult, though, to do light and shade both well and both credibly. And, yeah. and you're one of a few broadcasters, I think, that can do it. Jeremy Vine springs to mind, Nicky oh, Campbell. Yeah. Uh, oh, Jeremy's so dear. I mean, he used to come on uh, all the time when he was in South Africa. And I was thrilled when, um, when he got the Jimmy Young gig it was just perfect do you think that is that a question of temperament then because clearly you went to the same journalism school that paxman did and humphreys and all of these people and yet mm. you know you, you're going to get something different from a rod sharp interview than you are with a paxman interview mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is that just purely down to your upbringing your temperament i think it is um i think i think we just look different ways uh and you have to look different ways for this audience i don't think it would be fair to this audience to hammer them I mean, all the suffering in the world is is hard enough to take if we don't take a a relatively humane view of it. Uh, And therefore, I think you have to emote a little bit more and you have to empathise a little bit more than you would do if you were doing the same interview for... Newsday or NewsHour or, or uh, the World at One. I mean, it's it's just a different, it's a different beast. You know, we make it different for the program. If I wasn't doing this program, if I had said to Jenny, I could do this really great show in the afternoon, I might never have developed this tone at all. Uh, it's it's possible. And could you redevelop it in another direction? Because I, I mean, hope you so. know, yeah. <laughs> I hope I'm not completely one trick pony. <laughs> but who knows? You know, at, at this point. 
Uh, at this point, nobody's ever asked me to do it. How does it work in terms of uh, Dotton then? Because there's, in a sense, I think there's two up all night, oh, yeah. isn't there? So I you think know, there's your show and then there's his. Yeah, I think it's completely do you Do you pass like ships in the night or something? Have you? Yes. Are you about to say, is it, I always imagine that, you know, there's that Michael Mann film, Heat, where there's Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and uh-huh. they, they never meet through the whole film and then there's like a, a one coffee shop scene in the middle of five minutes. Have you ever had that? Is that how oh, it yeah. works with Dotton? Oh, I mean, when I see Dotton, it's great. You how know, does that work it's, then? It's, uh, well, we love each other. It's just so much fun but I know that Dotton I used to sing more on the radio than I do now but I know that Dotton's cornered the market yes, singing yeah. it's very musical isn't it yes yes so that's fine you know it it, it, it should go different ways uh, and and maybe that gives people some relief too because if we were always hammering at all the trouble in the world maybe it wouldn't be as appealing maybe maybe it's these two faces of the program that that make it so long-lived how does it work in terms of lifestyle then, if you don't mind me asking? Because you're on air Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, yes. but you're you're not on air Thursday, Friday. No, that's right. Um, what do you do on a Thursday and a Friday? <laughs> um, it would be wrong to say that I, you know, only cultivate my potato patch. But I cultivate my potato patch. I grow I grow lots of potatoes and tomatoes and stuff in season. Um, and I go and see friends, and I and I talk to a lot of people. And sometimes I work on a piece, which is something I like to do. I travel. You know, I meet as many people as I can because my Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday is is a vaguely monk-like experience. Uh, I don't get out very much from Monday morning until Wednesday midnight. So after that, I feel that I'm at liberty. And and then I also, I, I, I spend a lot of time, in the wintertime, I spend a bit of time with um, a group of kids who tend to be 12, 13, 14. And I talk to them about ethics for some reason. Wow. And we have, uh, you know, we have lovely conversations and they they give me a different perspective. Because you, you say monk-like existence, but in one sense you're isolated because you're here in this attic mm-hmm. and you're on your own. But in another sense, you're presenting a, a BBC network show with a, a million listeners and you've got to be hyper-connected to the world. So oh, you're both kind of isolated but super-connected yes. at the same time. Yes, I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm actually the essence of virtuality. <laughs> you know, this is virtual me yeah. that you're seeing here. Well, it's, like, it's like Tron, is it? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Uh, as you say, I'm, I, I mean, I'm constantly open to stuff uh, i have to i have to soak up much more than i will ever be able to you know expire or whatever the word is suspire i suppose rather than expire that's a word i haven't used in <laughs> 22 years on radio well, first well, first there you go. Podcast there's a first yeah it's complicated would you ever move back to the uk i know and and this is here's a revelation and i don't think this compromises my position but it it, it makes it it's part of my reality um, which is after a lot of thought, I became a an American citizen this summer. And I went along to be uh, sworn in with 350 other people, many people from Brazil, um, people from India, from Pakistan, from Russia, um, not very many people from the UK, it has to be said, from Canada, uh, just because I I feel I've been here long enough now not to be fully bought into this particular project. And I've been playing at this for the last 30 years anyway, maybe 40, in fact. So I'm now a dual national. So what this means is that at any given moment, uh, I can come over to the UK and I don't have to kind of sweat it with immigration, which is one of these secret things that Trump supporters don't get. 
they don't understand how how we sweat when we go to immigration or when we have to deal with visas. I've kind of regularized my position. People say, well, we expected that of you anyway. You know, I really do have a foot planted on, on both sides. And I, I still have my mum, who's uh, in Schoon, just north of Perth. Does she I listen would... live or is she a podcaster? No, I've, I've, uh, I've actually got her... I think podcasting is still a little beyond her because iPhones, you know, and and mother's mother's not very good at kind of touching things. She's very good at pressing them really hard, which would have serious results with an iPhone. So I I have a a, a radio with a, a a little card in it, and and it basically records. The show. Oh, that's lovely! And she can listen to it when she wants to, so she does. My mum listens to about 80% of these, so hello, mum, if you're listening. Oh, hello, mum. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that you like about America? What made you fall in love with it? And what are the differences? Cause oh, you... isn't that hard? I, you know, it's so easy, though, to fall in love if you come over here when you're young, and your natural tendency is to fall in love anyway. Um, and, of course, I had a blissful uh, entry because I came over as a student, and I, was, I, I won a scholarship, and I came over as a as a graduate student uh, to Princeton, which is probably one of the most beautiful university campuses. And I came over in this time of year, and I immediately discovered the kindness of complete strangers. And I discovered American idealism, enthusiasm, genuineness, friendliness, out- outgoingness, and uh, generosity. I don't know if I said enough. You know, there's a, yeah. there are all kinds there's of a lot wonderful, warm human qualities on display here. And then, of course, I got the overlay of the founding fathers and and the the nature of the of the republic, and I got a heavy dose of that, and I loved it. And I suppose that uh, I might have stayed here, uh, and I might never have gone back, but I did go back. What's been the best day of your career so far, and what's been the worst day? <laughs> oh, these questions, these questions. Are you used the to it? Are you used to having these mean, questions asked? I still, I still <laughs> think that the best day of my career, weirdly enough, was finding Bob Geldof. Now, Bob Geldof played a major part in two stories I did for BBC TV News in the 1980s. First of all, I was at the, I was at the press day for Live Aid, and we didn't know what, the, what this was. I, I suddenly got the phone call, get your butt down to, to Los Angeles because there's something going on, go to Universal Studios, you know, hear, hear this this recording studio. So I, I, I basically walked into this recording studio. Was this studio. the one where Queen did Wembley and... It was, it was what led to yeah. Queen doing yeah. Wembley. And I walked in, and it was, a, it was still a dark place, so a lot of people moving around. I thought that I recognised Kenny Rogers... And I thought that I recognised Quincy Jones. Wow. And at the back of the hall, there's this shuffling figure in carpet slippers, and it's Bob Geldof. What the, what's going on here? And then, of course, the whole story, you know, we were presented with, with what Live Aid was going to be, which was the, uh, the original Live Aid record, which was Feed the World. And they gave us all T-shirts, and, and I gave the, the T-shirt to the daughter of a friend of mine, and she... Probably still has it, for all I know. She should get it straight on eBay. She'll yeah, she should. She'd make a ton of money. Anyway, I did the interview. I kind of got the story right. I think I, I think I said that it was all Kenny Rogers' idea, and maybe Quincy Jones had a part to play as well. But of course, you know, everybody had been there: Cindy Lauper, Michael yep. Jackson. Uh, it, it was mid-year and uh, mid-year, Bob was Yeah, that's right. There was a fellow Scott. Yes. 
Uh, and then a year later, uh, Geldof was given an honorary knighthood because he's an Irish citizen. Uh, and so he's given an honorary knighthood, and the news of this came out, and he was in L.A. So I got the phone call, go and find Bob Geldof, would you? He's in L.A. So, How do you do how that? Do you do that? Yeah, all right. Well, I'm going to think of all the trendy hotels I know. So this was pre-Google, pre-Twitter. Oh, yeah. yeah, so yeah, this is 86. So I, I mean, said, now you could go on Twitter and probably someone yeah. would have just tweeted that they'd seen That's him right. somewhere and you'd so just go I, there. I rang, I rang two or three. You know, I rang the, the Bel Air and the Beverly Hilton and a couple of others. Hi, I'm Rod from the BBC's Bob Geldof there. More or less. Wow. Um, <laughs> no, I actually said as Mr Yates there because I realised he wouldn't be staying under his own name. Ah. You know, low cunning being an aspect of, of our trade. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I then called a place called the Mondrian in West Hollywood, which, curiously enough, I had either just been to or I'd talked to somebody who had just stayed there. And this was one of the new breed in the 80s of boutique hotels. And I thought, that's a likely place. Sure enough, I got right through to Mr. Yates's room and we're off to the races. So at this point, and Steve would laugh if he ever heard this, I was having mini war with a guy called Steve Futterman who was in L.A. for CBS, and, but he was also in L.A. for the BBC. And whenever I came to L.A., Steve miraculously got to know about it and got very upset because I was poaching on his turf. He regarded me as it was okay for me to be in San Francisco. It was not okay for me to be in L.A., even if I'd been commissioned to come and do the story. So I thought to myself, I'll make the ultimate sacrifice because Steve had also been put in the case. They told me that they were, you know, it was basically first one to the story. That was very collegiate. Wasn't it? Well, wait a minute. You know, so I, I called Steve and I said, look, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to produce it. You can report it. We'll both get the money, which was very important. And uh, so he, was, he actually went on air with Sir Bob. I had, uh, I had found him. Even though you did all the legwork. And- yeah. After that, uh, Steve and I were, were bosom buddies, as we remain to this day. And the worst day? Or has, oh, there, been a, yeah, has no, there been a litany there of worse days? No, there have been worse days. Um, Ray Snoddy once said to me, he said, journalism is the worst job in the entire world unless you just happen to think it's the best. Yes. <laughs> no, I like that. And, and, and Ray's so good. The worst days, quite honestly, were when I was working in TV news. Um, and I was working as a sub in the TV newsroom um, in a job that just didn't really fit me. And and this may sound silly, but if you've been through university and if you've if you've got most of a postgraduate degree, coming and writing down people's names is really difficult. And I screwed up the name of this racing driver, and I I gave him the wrong surname or something, and this went out on on the air, you know, on the na- on the six o'clock news or something, and I got such a a fanging for it from the assistant editor who was a terrifying character. Uh, and after that, he took against me in a big way. And, gee, I, d- I suppose I deserved it. Uh, but if I look back on that, that was that was a gloomy moment in my journalistic career, that it all hung on getting names right. But I have to tell you, young journalists, it all hangs on getting names right. You know, get the names right and the rest will follow. Last question then. What advice would you give to an aspiring journalist who wants to be the next Rod Sharp? Oh, my goodness. Well, try and do as much as you can. Really try and do as much as you can. And if, if something doesn't suit you, remember Tigger. Because when, when Tigger went round looking for breakfast, he tried thistles. He didn't like thistles. And uh, he tried honey, he, and he didn't like honey. And finally, he settled on extract of malt. You've got to find the thing that you like. 
journalism isn't just one thing. It's a myriad of, of opportunities and, and different things. And you may find that you are naturally attracted to um, celebrity journalism and TMZ and all that. Or you may find writing financial reports is your thing. Uh, so don't give up until you've found it. And don't forget to remember to always make money. Never give it away. Rod, if it was up to me, this podcast would be 11 hours long because I've got even more questions, but I think we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!